Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Part of that was, you know, if you take an entrepreneur's willpower and creativity and you line that up with a risk on environment, you can you can think you're a genius and you're making you're just raking in all the monopoly money. But what happens when we go to risk off and all that leverage dries up, they take all that monopoly money away from you. So I was trying to think about how do we hedge that downside risk? Thanks for listening to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives. I'm your host, Jeff Malik, and today we're joined by two guys I feel like I've known for 30 years, but who I've actually only known for a little more than one. We're here with Black Pearl Management's Jason Buck and Taylor Pearson, or as I sometimes conflate into one stage name, Buck Taylor. Welcome, guys. Glad to be here. like our new stage name. Love it. I like so, how we're calling it a stage name and not the other. Yeah. So, Buck Taylor, we started working together about a year ago. You guys come into RCM with a crazy idea to build a portfolio of vol managers to help protect against market down moves in real time. And since then, we've bounced about a thousand ideas off each other and different concepts, which I have to admit, it's been a lot of fun and intellectually challenging for me. So thanks for that. Uh, and you're both self-labeled entrepreneurs from different backgrounds. So let's get into how in the world you ended up at a hedge fund, hedge fund conference in Miami. Uh, Taylor, start off with you. You started out in digital marketing. That's an interesting in into this space. How'd that work out? Yeah, so I um, I guess my, my sort of like entry into the, the hedge fund space or, or you know, what we're doing now. Uh, I graduated from college sort of at the bottom of the 2008 uh, financial collapse with a very useful degree in history from a very no-name Small university in Alabama. That's so better than I thought you were going to say the bottom of your class. <laughs> no, I was, I was at the top of the class. The top of the class, the bottom of the market. Correct. Yeah. Worst of the best. I'm the worst of the best. Um, and so I, I got really interested sort of in the whole like Nassim Taleb and just trying to understand. I, I didn't have any exposure to financial markets or really know anything about it. I didn't study finance. Um, and sort of watching, you know, what was happening there, I got really interested in. Um, you, yeah, Taleb's work you know, complexity theory, ergodicity, economics, all the things that, uh, that kind of grew out of that, but I uh, didn't really know where to go with that. And so started, uh, some guys told me on the internet that if you could sell things on the internet, that that was a useful skill. And so, uh, I got a job, worked at a marketing agency. I worked for a e-commerce company based out of California, um, manufactured in Asia, I went over to Asia for a while and, uh, was helping them set things up there. And so what they're selling widgets or what were they selling? We were selling, uh, so our, our, our most interesting product line was high-end cat furniture, like nice. stylish uh, litter boxes. Um, but we also, it was mostly hospitality equipment, so we sold like portable bars, like caterers would use at weddings. We sold uh, valet parking equipment, like mostly to hotels, event rental agencies. The high-end cat furniture must have been gold for uh, like digital marketing, though, for AdWords and whatnot. Like, it seems like a pretty specific search. 
Yeah, it was a specific. It was one of those. I mean, you know, as you'd expect, the market's like not that big. Like it wasn't. You know, yeah. you could only get the product line. There's only so many people that pay three hundred dollars for a litter box. But uh, we we found all those people. We own that market. So. Nice. Three hundred dollars. Uh, I gave something. It was like two hundred. Take away the smell as well. Litter box. No, I think it just looked nice. It's just <laughs> like a pretty, pretty litter box. Uh, yeah. So then, somewhere around there, you wrote a book. And so yeah, we that company got sold in. Um, trying to think 2014, 2015. Um, and I was kind of trying to figure out what to do. And I'd had a kind of a blog and some stuff I've been doing on the side, writing, doing my own sort of marketing stuff. And I'd always wanted to write a book. And I was actually at a conference in Bangkok with uh, Mike Cavell. Uh, she'd written a, written a number of books on trend following. And Mike kind of started talking trash to me and uh, telling me he didn't think I could do it and trying to psych me up to write a book. And so I said, you know, fine, I'll I'll do it. And so um, that's so weird. You had you didn't want to write a book about markets and you weren't there to hear him talk about markets. Right. It was just it coincidence was like, that it was a trend following guy, which is the RCM world, was there at a conference telling you to write a book. Yeah. Some I don't know. Some weird change. It wasn't a yeah, it wasn't a finance conference. It was like a, a startup kind of Internet business uh, conference. Then Mike obviously has got his online stuff that he does and uh, courses and all that. So he was there like kind of from that that angle but that was how we we sort of connected so what was the book so the book was called the end of jobs it's uh kind of a future of work careers book so kind of talking about you know what i had learned from you know my my impression of how the world worked in college versus afterwards and sort of like how how career paths were changing how you know the way my parents thought about careers was different from you know what i had seen in terms of what was actually working and you know the, obviously the big story was just like the internet like there's this thing called the internet and it has some unique possibilities. You know, you can, you know, at that point I had a, I had a blog that like a few thousand people read, which was like a weird phenomenon, right? It's like, who am I? Like, why do thousands of people like read stuff I write on the internet? Like it's, yeah. you know. Well, it's total democratizing, right? Of like, if you're smart and have good stuff to say, people are going to find you and, and read you. Right. Um, and so is this concept, did it tie into like millennials don't want to stay at one job for very long and, and things of that nature? It was, yeah, more just like how to leverage the internet to improve your career, right? You know, you can, all the things you can do to sort of like, um, if you think, there's some of the big ideas, like one, this idea of uh, of kind of the long tail, which is a book by um, Chris Anderson, who's a Wired editor. And basically, if you look at, if you look at, say, like sales on the Amazon platform, something like 52% of sales are done through third-party sellers. So it's not Amazon that's actually fulfilling these orders. There's uh, a great pod on a reset, I think, about these those fulfillment centers and there's a bunch of them in South Dakota. It's like totally transformed a few small little towns that just repackage things all day long. Yeah. Um, but so obviously there's these, all these small businesses that are like selling stuff like high end cat furniture. Um, that, you know, you know, Walmart's not going to manufacture that. Uh, you know, Amazon's not going to go manufacture that, but in, in aggregate, that's a, there's a really long tail of those sort of, um, opportunities that people can latch on to. So kind of how those businesses work, you know, um, small software businesses, uh, e-commerce businesses, you know, online productized service businesses, what, what those sort of things are, how you get into that. And so now you're, we're in New York City, but you moved down to Austin? Yes, yeah, so I moved to New York uh, maybe a year after that company got sold. And I was there for three years and then uh, recently moved down to Austin. I think that's probably the average New York yeah, I residency there, I, is probably around three years before you like, what am I doing? Yeah, I said I was gonna stay two to four years and three years. I was like, yeah, I'm good. There you go. And now you have a, a new book coming out. Yeah, I'm working on a new book um, called Market Treating the World. 
It is. Uh, it's, the title's a riff off of um, Jimmy Eatwell. Basically, uh, Mark Andreessen, the Netscape founder, uh, now venture capitalist, his, his like riff. He had a op-ed, I think, in the Wall Street Journal maybe eight or ten years ago called "Software Is Eating the World." You know, you're just seeing software come to sort of dominate all these industries. You know, Fang and, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And so, um, kind of a riff off of how you know, part of what we say when we say software is eating the world is like really what we're saying is software-enabled markets are eating the world, right? Like, what is you know, Facebook and Google are, are content markets, right? They're, they're selling ads on one side and having, you know, user-generated content on the other side. You know, Amazon is, like, very obviously a marketplace. Um, you know, Apple, not so much, but, you know, becoming more, like, service-oriented, moving more towards the App Store is, like, a bigger part of their thing. And then trying to think about, you know, what does that look like further down the road? So I've gotten interested in sort of the, the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space and, you know, what in, in what ways does that enable... Uh, new markets and then how does just kind of the the way in which markets exist today and, and where are they trending i like it can i get a a pre-version yeah you're on early Done. list. i'm gonna take uh probably 25 percent chance bet that the book comes out of the end of markets your editor's gonna convince you to change the name good yeah no, and then start a series the end of guy yeah i could do that i like it um jason let's get over to you uh so you were in commercial real estate yes Correct. And so uh, I got into commercial. I went to uh, college, Charleston, played soccer there for a while. And then um, post-college, uh, got into commercial. My family's always kind of been in real estate business, whether it's, you know, flipping houses or real, you know, on the realtor side, on my mom's side. Um, but kind of fell in love with commercial real estate and the complexities of it. So I started a commercial real estate development company in Charleston um, where we'd take, you know, two, 300-year-old buildings along that King Street corridor and try to renovate them for highest and best use, whether it was putting in offices, restaurants, apartments, kind of that sort of thing. Um, I kind of liked it because it was a free option on restaurants, which I eventually got into the restaurant business. Is like if you're renovating the building, you can put the restaurant on the ground floor. Uh, if the restaurant fails, you can lease that now, that space, that updated space for three times more than you could before. So it's a, it's a great fiduciary responsibility for your investors because they have the real estate that's going to gain in value and you get basically a free option on the restaurant. So, yeah, I did commercial real estate. Obviously, like I said, owned some restaurants. Tried setting up a, a Wi-Fi mesh network for the city for internet service provider. You know, maybe a little too early on that one. But uh, always been a serial entrepreneur since I was a little kid. Um, you know, that stereotypical story, I wish I was unique. But, you know, I was selling bracelets in school at like nine years old to making mixtapes and selling them when I was 12 to, you know, playing nefarious businesses, I'm sure. What, was, uh, what were the, some of the songs on the mixtapes? So what I would do is uh, at the time, Yo! MTV Raps just came out. So I'm, I'm dating myself. Yeah. And, uh, but it would come on at one o'clock in the morning in our region because I grew up in Michigan and, uh, I would set an alarm to get up and I had a dual tape deck system and I, I figured out how to attach it to the TV. So when Yo! and TV raps would come on, I'd sit there and I'd hit record when the video would come on and it would record onto one tape. And then, you know, once the song was over, stop and wait for the commercials and just do that from like one to two o'clock in the morning. And then because I had dual cassette, then I'd burn those onto new cassettes and then I'd take those to school and sell them for five bucks. Uh, MTV, his address is, if you want to assume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you were the original Napster. Yeah, exactly. The original Napster. The original yeah. Napster, yeah. It was like uh, analog, the, uh, analog Napster. The Italian job movie with that guy who's, I am the original Napster. Yeah, and then how it relates to markets is, you know, that also a stereotypical story. I uh, convinced my dad to set up a, a stock account for me when I was like 13, 14 years old. And like a, like a typical noob, I read an article about, and I'm not, I don't even know where I read it, about uh, American Standard, the toilet company, was going to move into China and provide toilets for a billion people. 
So I was like, I, you know, you gotta get in. die hard convincing my dad, like, this is it. Like I'm buying American standards. That was my first stock. I don't even know what happened. Like, uh, I'm sure who knows, probably down like everybody's first. Um, and then in 99, uh, 80, 98, 99, I, I day traded a lot of the tech companies, um, using, you know, those first like E-Trade accounts and everything and ran up like 2000 into, I think it was $98,000. Thought I was a genius. And then basically lost it all overnight. Like everybody did. Yeah. Uh, what and was the I was trading a stock at that time. They were doing the sat phones, the satellite phones. Yeah. Um it'll come to me in a minute. But the whole trade was you would they'd launch the new satellites and if the launch was successful the stock would pop. Nice. So people are literally we would call in and you'd listen to the launch. There was like a conference line to be like three, two, one launch and there were a couple i don't know why like we'd already put someone on the moon but these things would fail they wouldn't deploy properly like yeah 20 percent of the time so you even had a more sophisticated idea than i had at least you had a company you even knew the name of so what i would do and well i just is, forgot the name but well, yeah. uh, curious on your thoughts on we work from your commercial <laughs> commercial um, leasing background or commercial real estate background I think I think all the stuff, all, all the issues with WeWork have been written, right? And I, I don't know if I have anything nuanced or, or new to add to it, other than like we were trying to build out. I remember I was, you know, th that was the one nice thing about Charleston was like, it was a little bit behind the times, so I could go to like New York, London, Paris, San Francisco, and see what's on the cutting edge of ideas, and I could bring them to Charleston, and I'd be like five years ahead, or what worked in other cities. And so I was like one of the first people trying to build out a communal office space in Charleston, but it was more on a, a long-term lease basis. So I wasn't, you know, trying to do the, the WeWork model, but uh, worked on a lot of those more um, cutting edge concepts like that of like, you know, kind of, you know, almost piggybacking what, what um, Taylor was working on. It's like the, the new workspace is going to be a communal workspace where I can rent an office and, you know, beanbag chairs, beer, and, you know, coffee on tap kind of thing. And uh, foosball tables. Exactly. So... With a phone assist, I just remembered the uh, company was Iridium, satellite Iridium. phones, Iridium. Uh, so let's talk, how did you guys hook up and uh, what, what did the, how did the partnership form? Sure, so I'll go back a little bit. Um, so as I stated, I was a primary business was commercial real estate development. And obviously 2007, 2008, 2009 happened. And that obviously decimated the business. And um, it was fairly like a a really traumatic experience for me to go through that. Um, one, just probably just for ego's sake, because I thought, you know, I was smarter than everybody else and I'd figure this out and I was worth millions of dollars on paper. And yeah. uh, it was a really devastating blow to not only lose that net worth statement, but more importantly, to lose my money, my family's money, friends' money. It was, it was absolutely devastating. And if I'm, to be quite frank about it, it took me years to really get over it. Like it, it was a probably a deep, dark depression, if, if, if we were to call it that. And part of that process over the last decade was to figure out, I never wanted to experience that again. Like I, there's gotta be something wrong with my business model, my own hubris, all these things. I, I've got to figure out how to solve it. And part of that was, you know, if you take an entrepreneur's willpower and creativity and you line that up with a risk on environment, you can, you can think you're a genius and you're making, you're just raking in all the monopoly money. But what happens when we go to risk off and all that leverage dries up, they take all that monopoly money away from you. So I was trying to think about how do we hedge that downside risk? And so part of that was learning how to trade options, learning how to trade VIX, learning how to trade all these long volatility and tail risk events. Because actually what we didn't get into what happened was, speaking of my stupidity in general, is like as I saw the market turn in real estate in 2007, because I'm, I'm, I'm 
selling apartments and everything. And I see the, we're moving from these like, you know, no doc loans to now I can't sell apartments because nobody can get loans. So you see it ahead of the curve. And I went to some of the oldest developers in Charleston. All these guys were probably over the age of 50, 60 years old. And I went to a group of like half a dozen of them. And I was like, you know, are you guys nervous? And to a man, they said, no, nah, this time is different. What I didn't know then was how optimistic real estate developers are. So, And how many times this time has, different has been yeah, proven. Yeah, right? Exactly. So, But I, I saw the writing on the wall. And so just um, you know, having to learn my own mistakes, I started shorting the market. I started teaching myself how to trade options, uh, which I shouldn't have taught myself. But this is like kind of pre-internet days, so it's hard to find good information. So I actually shorted the banks and the housing stocks. But the timing and the out of the money puts were too far out and, you know, IV expanded. So I actually lost money uh. shorting the housing and banking stock. So I, I was right. Like I was nervous and I was right, but I didn't know how to trade options. Right. Which is the classic. If you're in a stock, you just have to get the direction, right? If you're right. in options, you got to get the direction, the timing and the volatility, right? right. That's a, which I've said before, 3D chess on the ocean with sharks with lasers on their heads. Exactly. So I'm just burning through money, just trying to trying to hedge my risk and and, and doing the, the exact opposite. So I had to then I realized after the after the crash, I had to teach myself options. Uh, eventually, thinking about negative correlated assets got me into trading uh, VIX, ARB, those sorts of things. So I, I over the over that decade of figuring out, I didn't want to go through this again. So how do I hedge entrepreneurial risk? Uh, through that decade, I had to teach myself about how do you trade options, how do you trade VIX, how do you trade long volatility. So learned all those things, and then actually through working with you guys for the better part of God, it's been over five six years since I even found the RCM platform, is learning about the managers out there. I had to eventually realize that I'm a much better entrepreneur, so it's better for me to find the managers that can stare at the screens all day and trade better than I can. And then working with you guys and lawyers and everything, I started to figure out, okay, how do you put a, a package together of an ensemble of these managers that can handle multiple path dependencies and with the lawyers how do you figure this out so you know you can take smaller check sizes how do you how do you what's the loophole to get my family and friends in there how do i hedge entrepreneurial risk instead of somebody that's worth a hundred million dollars how does somebody that's worth a few hundred thousand dollars how do they how do they hedge themselves and so that's what we all work together on is try to figure that out and then eventually i realized that you know, I'm going to need a platform to sell this to retail clients i'm going to have to build up an audience and because i spent the 10 years you know, figuring out how to build a business the right way and how to trade all these products and, 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 the, and deep diving into this complex space. I didn't have an audience. I wasn't writing. I wasn't blogging. I wasn't anything. So I was like, I need to find the perfect partner that's already built a platform or else it's going to take me another decade. Is he in this room? And he happens to be in this room. And I just got serendipitously lucky enough that Taylor and I found each other online and, and developed a relationship over time online and really got to know each other well. And, and then we decided that we wanted to partner up and, and, and try to do this. And I, I'm immensely grateful and couldn't have found a better partner it's just it, amazing taylor was it did you guys find each other on a dating app or where how how online i had co-written an article with now a mutual friend of ours uh named gary that, that runs a, an algo fund in chicago about um crypto stable coins we were just like interested in the space and, and how you do stable coins and somehow jason found that article and emailed us and we started talking about um, yes, yeah, it started with crypto and then trading and, um, sort of through those conversations it came out, I was at the time, um, trying to find, I mean, similar to, to Jason, maybe earlier, I was, you know, like, I want some sort of tail risk, uh, exposure. I want some sort of long volatility exposure. I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to sort of get that exposure personally, friends, family, um, had a lot of people interested in that. I think, I think in part, you know, I mentioned sort of like 2008 and, and coming out of that was a big, 
um, influence on me. And then I had a lot of my, my writing, my consulting, uh, I was doing consulting work after the, the e-commerce company got sold was about like this idea of like anti-fragility and robustness. And, you know, how do we make companies more robust or anti-fragile and, uh, and, you know, it, had that sort of trickled over into, into investment portfolios. And so, uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I think I mentioned to Jason, I had like a couple of funds and I was talking to them and, uh, he was like, no, no, you know, you, you don't, you know, you need to do it this way. And so we, that ended up in a, a you know, six month back and forth of, you know, him, him t- talking me through like, well, you know, this is where volatility arbitrage does bad and you haven't thought about this and you haven't thought about that. And so, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he had he was black hatting it. Yeah, and it was it was also our, our mutual love of Taleb books and then and, and Chris Cole white papers from Artemis. That's really like that's where the meeting of the minds was, and that's where we both knew we were searching for very similar things. So, not to burst your guys' bubble, but you weren't unique in this search for tail risk, right? And the Correct. banks and there were tail risk funds coming out and all this stuff. Right. What what were you seeing in those that wasn't meeting the need? Well, I think I guess. You know, partially from my, I mean, part of the problem from my perspective was just like distribution. Like I wasn't, I didn't know how to find that stuff, right? It's like you can't go Google like tail risk fund and it pops up like 50 options of like here's the different things with. Um, yeah, so maybe the, the banks were selling to their biggest clients with, with tens of millions of dollars. Right, <laughs> right. I didn't yeah. have $10 million to allocate to the strategy. Um, and then, I mean, I think the, um, you know, obviously like, I was interested in my, for myself, for my friends, for my family, like people that, yeah, could write a hundred K check, but or maybe, you know, half a million dollar check, but not someone that could write a $10 million check. And so, you know, what that obviously like narrows down the sort of like investable, uh, universe there a lot. And then I think the, I mean, the thing that we spent a bunch of time talking about is sort of this, you know, traditionally in tail risk, you have this, um, this trade off between sort of like the bleed or the carry in good years, you know, when the market's up, you know, how much is the, the strategy down versus the, um, you know, how much protection you get in the risk on environment, how much sort of convexity you have in the... But w- why weren't you guys saying like, okay, I need to put 40% in bonds or I need to do managed <laughs> futures? Like what was, you know, the, there's classic ways to diversify and to hedge. What was your, what were you seeing? of like, ah, eh, that's not for me. I think I, as we talked about, like if our spirit animals are like Nassim Taleb or, or Chris Cole, it's like you read that stuff and you're, you're acutely aware that bonds have worked for 30 years. You know that if you look at the hundred-year history of the correlations, it's, it's dra- dramatically different. And I think that um, we're both like, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're like we're very um, historically minded. Like we both of us, I think about like hundreds of years and cycles. Like, and so it's really hard to have some sort of intellectual integrity and just believe what's worked for the last 20, 30 years will work moving forward. Both of us have a really hard time with that. I think. And so Taylor, don't discount that history major too much. There you go. All right. Um, and I forgot to mention, or you forgot to mention where, where in there did you work in the, uh, Turkish rug bazaar? Yeah. So, uh, uh, when I was 19 years old and when I was 21 years old, I went to Istanbul, Turkey for a summer. I, uh, in Charleston, I had worked in a, a restaurant that was run by uh, a Turkish man from Istanbul. And so he said, if you ever want to, uh, you can go to Istanbul and you can make a, a fortune in commissions off selling Turkish rugs to American tourists. And this is like pre-internet, like, yeah. and I, my, because he, he needed an English speaker. No, like, bless my parents. Yeah, basically, but bless my. I just, I just flew to Istanbul, not knowing anybody or anything. I had like a, uh, an address and a name, and so I went to this guy, and like he's the the guy that owned the the rug shop that made the rugs and everything. He's really smart because he he knew that if he had at the time, you know, uh, a white blonde kid from the Midwest, that American tourists coming off the cruise ships are much more likely to trust him than a native, you know, Turk. Yeah. 
And so that's so you loaded up street, the uh, I was a street peddler. Yeah. What's that song? Constantinople. Yeah, you load that up in the Walkman yeah, yeah, yeah. and head it yeah. over. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople. Been a long time gone. Constantinople. Yeah, this is this is how this is how crazy it was at the time. I'm, it was either my first or second time there. I signed up for a Hotmail account. That's how new it was, and that was cutting edge. And I would maybe call my parents like once every two weeks because it was really expensive for like a, a few minutes. Yeah, and so but and was he right? You could make a small fortune. Yeah, it's ever um, and maybe just as much as I'm talking now, you maybe don't realize I'm an ex- extreme introvert. So it's really difficult for me to approach people on the street. So it's probably good for me to get me out of my shell, but I wasn't very good at it, to be honest with you, because it's just it's it's kind of anathema to my personality. Uh, and the Cliff Notes version of your bio, Taylor, you were a uh, Brazilian Super Bowl champion. Yeah, I. Uh, what What in the world does that mean? Uh, but but before I started doing marketing stuff, I got a job. I worked for a year as like an English as a foreign language instructor in Brazil, and uh, I'm at this like classic rock bar in Sao Paulo. And I run into this guy, uh, played at Dartmouth, played college, and he's uh, he's like, oh yeah, like we you know Brazil starting like a national football league. And you were a bit bigger at the time. Yeah, I played offensive line in college uh, at a D three school, and uh, he was like, you know, you should you should like come play for us. And so I came and I joined his team, and it was like it wasn't even you know it was like semi pro, like we got like some comps and gym memberships and stuff, but it wasn't like we were getting paid. But, uh, yeah, we, we were in the championship. It was on ESPN Brazil. We had, like, 10,000, 15,000 people in the stadium. No one knew the rules or what was going on, but they were yelling. We got to dig up the uh, footage, put it in the show notes. Yeah, we crushed them. I think it was, like, 54 to, to 7 or something. I love it. Uh, and, Jason, D1 soccer, what, what position were you? Uh, center midfield primarily. So, yeah, I played at College of Charleston. Uh, before that, I lived at the IMG Academy in Florida with, like, all the professional tennis players and I was lucky enough. I played in um, all over South America, Europe as a kid, and got and to so travel the country. Why do you hate sports now? Then <laughs> uh, I was I grew up in a household where we weren't very sports orientated, except for like alternative sports. My dad was a little weird, so he was really into uh, America's Cup sailing, uh, triathlons. So we have that in common. The Ironman. And well, hold on, I was a professional sailor for a little bit, so I take offense that that's an alternative sport. You know, it's alternative. Come on. So no. like in my house, we didn't watch. It's called the America's Cup. Yeah, exactly. We didn't watch NBA or NFL. We watched like America's Cup. We watched Iron Man. So we didn't watch any of those sports. And then growing up playing soccer, uh, and my brother played ice hockey. My sister was a gymnast, all at, at like elite level. Um, I just soccer was like the only sport. And then nowadays, I just yeah, I really don't follow. I watch uh, English soccer because it's nice to get up in the mornings and watch it on the weekends. But I don't have like a team I follow or anything like that. Welcome back to The Derivative. I'm here with Jason Buck and Taylor Pearson, designers of the Mutiny Investment Program. So we just learned, uh, finished up learning about these two athletes turned businessmen turned portfolio managers. Let's get into the portfolio approach you guys have created and you know what is the Mutiny strategy all about? So the Mutiny strategy is an idea of taking an ensemble approach to different managers inside the long volatility and tail risk space. And so what we think is when you have a risk-off environment, um, you're going to have multiple path dependencies on how that uh, comes to fruition. So we tried to put together as many different path dependencies as we could across an ensemble of seven managers. So that way, uh, whatever that risk-off environment is, we try to capture it. And so we, we created a structure of basically three buckets. We have a volatility arbitrage bucket that does relative value trades on on the vol surfaces, whether that's 
you know, calendar spreads or, or VIX versus S&P. Uh, the second bucket we use is uh, dynamic options. So we have managers that do, you know, straddles on the S&P. And if, if they can't find um, cheap convexity there, then they'll look for proxies. And they also do strangles on the S&P 500. Uh, the third bucket we use is uh, just called short-term down capture, which is just using the, the Delta One futures. And they, they trade intraday, you know, short the S&P 500. And then we have another manager um, that, that follows that relay race from around the world. They'll trade intraday short futures in Asia, Europe, and the United States. And then we felt that that ensemble approach um, gave us a, a, a nice balance of return streams while we're waiting for that risk off event. But just in case our managers weren't in the market at the time, we thought we could add the piece of uh, just continuous rolling puts and we could absorb that bleed through the returns of our other managers. So we kind of added this uh, pseudo fourth bucket of, of permanent rolling puts just in case you have some sort of exogenous event on a Sunday that nobody was expecting. Pretty good. little... Four floor elevator. Uh, Taylor, how would you put that in layman's terms? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Jason's the the smart one. My 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 uh, dumb down for myself explanation is uh, I mean you start from the premise that diversification is good, right? You know you can uh, you know increase your returns per unit of risk. Uh, in order to do that, you need uh, negatively correlated assets. So you know if most people have most of their portfolios in equity exposure, you want something that's negatively correlated to equities you know the challenge with uh, a lot of you know and there, there are things that do that the challenge with a lot of those strategies you know say like um you know the vix exchange traded products uh is that they tend to have you know very high negative bleed in good years such that you know when the when the risk off tail event comes up you've already sort of you know you've bled 90 percent of, of what you put into the strategy from the start and it's 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 not enough to sort of make up for that so and we we got into that on the uh principalium alex oris podcast of the the VIX, if you want long VIX exposure, the ETF has lost 99.99% of its value. So it's quite possibly the worst possible thing to get that long-term exposure. If you want negative correlation VIX exposure tomorrow, it's a great product. If you want it even the end of the week, not so great. If you want to hold it for a year, it's literally the worst product you could do. Um, so coming back, Ensemble, we're just talking about many different strategies or many different managers. What do you mean by ensemble? Yeah, yep. both, both different strategies. I mean, I guess the way I, you know, again, my dumbed down version for myself is like, you know, if we, if you want to buy, you know, fire insurance on every forest in the world all the time, that's very expensive, right? You're going to, you're going to bleed to death on that. Um, and so, you know, what, what we want to do with, with using active managers and active strategies is we want to take people that are buying, you know, they're using their, their own proprietary algos to say like, you know, this, this area has, you know, high winds and is really dry. And so, you know, the, the chance of a forest fire spiking off here is, is elevated. And, you know, you're just buying sort of insurance on that, that portion of the forest at that time. But the challenge with that is, uh, you know, what, what if you miss the fire, right? You know, it's, you think it's in Northern California, it's in Southern California. And so the idea behind having an ensemble of both strategies and managers is, okay, uh, each of these, as Jason says, has different path dependencies where they do well and different path dependencies where they do badly, if we can take them and, and match them up. So the way we've tried to construct the portfolio is such that the the managers are uncorrelated to each other in risk on times, right? They have different sort of path dependencies in risk on times, but then they should, you know, the strategy should all flip to be uh, correlated with each other, but negatively correlated to the equities markets in a, a risk off event. So two things there. One, who's buying forest fire insurance? Squirrels and deer? <laughs> Yeah, Bambi. Yeah, who didn't work who out gets, well for Bambi? Uh, Bambi got screwed. Who gets <laughs> injured in a forest? I mean, I guess people in California. But yeah, thanks. 
for the most part, there's no one who really needs fire, uh, forest fire insurance. But I get the, the metaphor. Secondly, secondly, is that a word? Secondly, you're saying you wanted negative correlation. The whole rest of the world is uh, pitching non-correlation. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? And why negative correlation would mean when the market goes up, you're going to lose money. So, how do you square that? Of like, I need negative correlation to diversify. Well, the, the ideal, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, right, is you want non-correlation in risk on times, and you want negative correlation in uh, risk off times. So that, I mean, that's that's the that's the hypothetical ideal of what you're you're sort of trying to construct. And then obviously, that's you know, there is no perfect right. you know thing that does that but that philosophically i guess that's where we kind of came at it trying to think of something that would that would fit that return profile and i see it from a different way and investors that we talk to at rcm they're kind of getting fed up with non-correlation because they can't rely on it all the time so they're saying okay december of 18 managed futures lost five percent stocks were down eight percent mm. like wh why did that happen it's supposed to be my diversifier right and you explain to blue in the face that non-correlation means a lot of the time they're going to do the exact same thing as stocks. A lot of the time they're going to do the exact opposite of stocks, average that all together over many years and you get a 0 0.06 correlation, non-correlation in real time, any day or week or month, you could have very high positive correlation. To your point about when your clients come to you about that is that I think fundamentally people don't understand non-correlation. When they when you talk about non-correlation, what they envision in their head is actually negative correlation. So that's actually what we're just trying to service. And so not to use like, you know, numbers per se, but like let's say in, in 2018, if you have negatively correlated assets, in 2018, you know, the stock market's down, let's say roughly 5%. Uh, a portfolio that was long volatility tail risk was up, let's say 20%, right? So your, your blended rate, you're going to be, you know, positive on that year. Coming into 2019, the stock market rips higher and it's up 30%. But then your negatively correlated long volatile risk funds would be, let's say, down 5%. So you compound those blends over time. Your log wealth is going to increase over time. That's why you want negatively correlated assets. But to belabor the point a little, if you have the purely negative correlated, the VIX ETF, right, would, they would negate each other, right? Yeah, you're totally negating each other. So right. and you that's, can't have right. perfect negative correlation. You can't have perfect negative correlation. But what you can do through an ensemble of managers, this is the whole point, point of active management, is they can try to risk uh, reduce or truncate that left tail or bleed during the risk on times. So as the S and P is ripping higher, and these guys are negatively correlated to the S and P, they're also trying to reduce that bleed. So they're actively trying to reduce that bleed. So that's why the correlations are never going to be negative one, is because that's that's where you achieve the outperformance is when you're actively managing that negative correlation with the long volatility and tail risk. That's where the the power of the combination of short volatility and long volatility um, helps you achieve, you know, compounded growth rates that are much higher with less drawdowns over time. Which is the classic modern portfolio theory. Um, you know, portfolio mixture of non-correlated assets has a, a higher return, less volatility. I know we don't necessarily like to measure risk by volatility, but uh, that's the classic approach, right, of a portfolio approach can accomplish that. Right. I guess like the logic is not that different from like risk parity, but just the in terms of like having things that are either uncorrelated or anti-correlated. But the, instead of like deriving it from statistical correlations, we're trying to think of like, you know how can we derive it more fundamentally. And I would say you're you're very different in the approach versus a classic man of futures trend following approach that 
I say it in layman's terms of if the market does this, if you didn't come into the sell-off long stocks already, if bonds are not already on an uptrend, if it lasts weeks to months long, the down move, then managed futures should perform. You know, kind of by definition, it'll perform because it's going to get into all those moves. Uh, and that's what upsets investors of like, well, there's way too many ifs, what Jason would call path dependency. Um, you guys set out to take away a lot of those ifs. Is that true? Yeah, the, the couple ways to look at it, like you're going to see those path dependencies show up in either the volatility markets in the VIX uh, futures markets. Uh, you're going to show it, see it show up in options pricing, which is, you know, a form of volatility trading as well. Or you're going to see it show up and, um, you know, drawdowns in against the S&P in the futures markets. But going back to your point is like, are you guys a, you know, it's a combo of both. So we, we try to use an ensemble of buckets for path dependencies. And then inside each bucket, we use an ensemble of managers inside each bucket. Because what I really want to do is create a, a stronger signal that way. So this is kind of a, a debatable point, but I don't necessarily believe in alpha. I only care about balancing out betas and then rebalancing those betas between them. So I want the different buckets of path dependencies. And then by having a, an ensemble of managers inside it, I can get the beta return of vol arb, the beta return of, of dynamic options trading, the beta return of short-term down capture. Because I want to make sure I capture that beta return because idiosyncratically, those managers might be all over the place. But the more of them I put inside that bucket, I might not get the highest return, but I'll get a I'll get a an ensemble return that's a stronger signal, and that allows me to balance out those betas between those buckets. So that way, we we have the positions on for the different path dependencies. Got it. now a, a classically trained market analyst head would explode to say there's a volar beta, right? Because yeah. there's not right. an ETF or an easy way to trade it. So right, what you're just saying is you want the as close as possible to that. Theoretical, theoretical return stream right. that's provided by that type of strategy. Right. So if I have, you know, five different volar managers and their returns are anywhere from six to ten percent, you know, I want to hit that eight percent sweet spot every time. And then next year, the manager that returned ten, he might return six, and the one that returned six might return ten, and vice versa throughout the whole ensemble. But it it makes sure I get a theoretical beta signal for that volar bucket. So I I get a much stronger signal than taking those idiosyncratic signals of just one manager. And let's dive into each of those buckets a little bit. So uh, the first, we were just talking about Volarb. What is Volarb? This, I'm a stickler for definitions. So always like the arbitrage definition bothers me because to me, arbitrage should be a riskless profit, right? Yeah. You're buying and selling two things at the same time and you're taking the spread. That's what we all know as arbitrage, but everybody's now expanded arbitrage into statistical arbitrage, et cetera. So we use colloquially volatility arbitrage, but the, what they are really is relative value trades. Um, so basically, we have different managers that look at different things within the the VIX structure. So one will trade the um, the VIX futures index versus the S&P futures index. And they will look and they'll ratio that spread out based on their proprietary algorithms. But it's basically a relative value trade between VIX and S&P. So they'll be like short VIX, short S&P. Right. And then the market goes down, they're making money on the short S&P part and they're losing money on the short VIX part. Right. And then your, your ratio is where the where the alpha allegedly is, you know, like it just to use rough numbers for every VIX contract, you're going to need three S&P contracts to kind of ratio that out because VIX is like three times more volatile than the S&P. Right. Um, so that's how they're they're going to, you know, try to relative value. So it's just like any long short portfolio 
for lack of a better term, if right. it's long, long Microsoft, short, short yeah, IBM, yeah, exactly. Long Ford, short GM, whatever that yeah. you're doing that on VIX and S and P because technically VIX is a derivative of an S and P, uh, the options on S and P and we get to multiple layers of derivatives, but, I, um, I call it a quad derivative. Cause it's a, I think I go five out. Do so you go four? I, out. I go four out. It's All a right. futures, which is a derivative on an index, which yes. is a derivative Correct. of options prices, which is a derivative of a stock index. I just go back for the, the S and P index is a derivative of, of the actual company. And then the company's stock certificate is a derivative of the actual company underneath. Oh, so it's a, that's a sex. Yeah. So anyway, we have, we have managers that trade the uh, relative value spread between uh, VIX and S and P. And then we have uh, managers that will trade the calendar spread on just VIX alone. So you can go, let's say short front month, VIX and long back month VIX, like three, four months out and, and try to ratio that spread out as well. And that allows you a much uh, cleaner relative value trade because it's at least all on the VIX products. So it's not, you're not uh, counting on the correlations between VIX and S&P. You're just working on the VIX term structure and how that relates from front month to back months. And the VIX uh, term structure just means the curve of the futures prices. If you Futures obviously have many months. So if I plot the VIX futures, the March future is going to be at whatever, 16. The April future might, or March, April, yeah. The April future might be at 16 and a half. Mm. The June future at 18. So I plot that on a graph and it naturally kind of slopes upwards. Right. Because people don't know what's going to happen in six months. They think they know better what's going to happen next month. Uh, so that uncertainty out into the future is reflected in higher VIX prices. And that curve, and they'll typically buy the front month, sell the back month, because if there's a, an event, the, the front month, you know, the event just happened now, the front month's going to spike a lot higher. Exactly. And, and just to confuse everything, we like to use words like contango for the slope of that curve. Yes. And when it flips, when there is a spike, it quickly flips into backwardation. Correct. So uh, we've had on our podcast a few of these managers. You've had on the Mutiny podcast a few of these managers. Just want to share a few of the... Uh, managers in that Volar bucket that you've been looking at? Sure. So when we were talking about the VIX versus S&P trade, um, for that part of the bucket, we use Pearl Capital out of San Francisco. Um, and then for the actual VIX calendar spreads, uh, we're using Principalium out of Switzerland. And also uh, we use Deepfield out of Switzerland as well for that bucket. Great. And then there's some others, uh, Certeza and some others that are on the list to add yeah, down yeah. the line. Yeah, we have, um, we're constantly, you know, via you know, our work with you guys, we're, we're constantly on the lookout for new managers or following managers, assessing their track record, seeing how they would fit into our ensemble. Do they, are they additive or are they just kind of, you know, similar to another manager? So we always have ones in the wings that I think we can, we can add in the future. It's all, it's always an issue of regulations and AUM, right? And what are your thoughts on like the law of diminishing returns? Yeah, that's why uh, we try to follow, track, assess, talk to the managers, um, look at them over time, stress test them, because if they are just going to add that signal, it's still actually not necessarily a, a terrible thing for a lot of diminishing returns if they are very similar to another manager. I mean, you really don't want to go beyond eight. I mean, that's really the sweet spot. But um, a lot of them, surprisingly, even though they trade very similar products and similar styles, their proprietary algos are going to be different enough well, they'll, they'll have different return streams over the months. They might equalize over a, a year or a business cycle. But if they're, if they're slightly uncorrelated, you know, month to month, quarter to quarter, that gives us a, a, a better way to rebalance between them and get a stronger signal and a, a better, that theoretical beta return I'm talking about. And a little, you believe a little rebalancing premium as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're talking, they could still be like 0.75 yeah. correlated or yeah. something. There's still going to be slight differences that, that exactly. pan out. Mm -hmm.
Right. So that's the Valar bucket. The next is the uh, options bucket. Dynamic options. So for for our straddles bucket. So um, the other thing I forgot to mention is when we talk about our dynamic options, we wanted that to be the bulk of our portfolio because um, to steal a phrase, uh, we view it as debit card investing. If we're only buying options, we know exactly what we can lose. That it's a death by a thousand cuts. We know exactly where the losses are and the gains are asymmetric and unknown. And that's how we view life, as both Taylor and I alluded to at the beginning, is we have a, a mutual love of anti-fragility, of asymmetric payouts, and you know, trying to go after unknown upsides and, and known downsides. So in that... Um, Before you go there, I got I to gotta expand. So you stole that from somebody, debit card investing? Yeah, from uh, Nancy Davis. Oh, all right. Um, cause, but the other side of that doesn't get talked about enough. Like that, the flip side of that <laughs> yeah. is credit card investing. Yeah, yeah. Which, dive into that. So credit card investing, you're basically borrowing risk from tomorrow yeah. instead of credit card borrowing against yourself out yeah. into the future. You're borrowing risk for tomorrow for something today. Until you default. Yeah. So you're <laughs> saying debit card investing. No, I'm, I'm taking away that yeah. risk. I'm only buying what I can afford. I'm yeah. not borrowing. Right. And then right. I have an asymmetric payout, unknown asymmetric payout. I just don't know if the credit card's the perfect technology. I'm trying to find one for the flip side of the debit card investing, right? Well, it was, a, that, I mean, that's what kicked off the Great Depression, right? It was the portfolio. People had like highly margined stock portfolios. You could take out these huge margin right. loans and, and load up on stocks and then yeah. like that whole But the quite collapsed. clear opposite of a debit card is the credit right. card. Yeah. Right. I'm just thinking about like, uh, you know, where, where we take small known losses for an asymmetric payout, you yeah. know, is a credit card small known gains for an asymmetric loss. I guess you could, that's why I say with default that it's the credit card companies that take it. They're taking that 22% VIG and small known gain. It's the, so the credit card company versus the investor side, right? Well, you, I think the, the consumers taking small gains in terms of like, I just got my Starbucks and I have a new TV and I got this thing, right? They're yeah. taking these small yeah. things in order for some big potential loss in the future of like, Hey crap, I can't pay for all this stuff. Yeah. I got to go bankrupt. Or I, or I look at it from the, or the credit card issuer side. Yeah. They're getting that 22% VIG, which just looks like every month they're making their 2% roughly. And then once somebody defaults, you lose a hundred percent. Right. But they only need five people at 22 to make it. Exactly. Up so anyway, so the dynamic options um, for, so like I said, only buying options um, primarily on S and P. And for the straddle portion, we use uh, Wayne Himmelstein out of logical capital in LA. Um, and Wayne is uh, buying straddles on the S&P 500. If he can't find cheap convexity there, he'll toggle ex his exposure into proxies, whether it's gold, fixing to come, et cetera. Um, and what's really interesting about what Wayne does, um, not to give away too much what he does, is he's able to constantly have the straddles on, which for most people, if you constantly have straddle straddles on, as you would assume, you'd bleed to death. But what Wayne is constantly doing is he's toggling the position sizing and gamma scalping the position. So that helps negate a lot of his bleed. And he still always has that position on. So in case you had some sort of exogenous event, he's in the market. Um, on the strangle side. Before, of, before you go there, yeah. let's uh, explain what gamma scalping is. You're going to. So as a position moves away from the underlying, your options are going to reprice. So then you can toggle your position sizing to gamma. So gamma is a function of vega. So as vega, the volatility of the underlying moves, you, the gamma on the front month contracts are going to convexly or non-linearly expand. So that gives a Wayne a way to retoggle his position and scalp some of those profits from those moves and reestablish his straddle. So it's a way of uh, kind of scalping the market. The best way, to, I think, to look at gamma scalping is you're actually if you do it right you're negating your theta 
So you're going to have your time bleed. Theta any, being time decay. Yeah, theta being time decay. So part of your option pricing when we're talking all these Greeks is, you know, you're going to have your theta, your time decay bleed. So the way you can make up for that is through gamma scalping. So a good gamma scalper is only going to negate their theta. You're never going to really make a profit necessarily with gamma scalping, but you can negate that theta, which then that that is the the sort of Damocles over any sort of a straddle or strangle position or buying options, right? And the you need to be short the option in order to gamma scout, but he's or you're long the option. No, you can do a long option and maybe you know toggle some futures, or if you toggle your option position and maybe you're at the money and moving a little bit out of the money and it, it depends on your ratio of puts and calls you have so he's right. adjusting his ratio of puts and calls and and based on what the market's giving him for pricing so he's searching for cheap convexity still all the time and we should have defined beforehand that uh a strangle you're basically buying puts and calls on at the on either at the money at the money Either side of the market, correct. So wait, thinking that the market's going to break out one way or the other. Right. So if, let's just say for rough terms, if S and P is at one hundred, you're buying a call that says the market's going to go up from there at a hundred dollars, and at the same time you're buying a put that says the market's going to go down from there at a hundred dollars. Let's say you pay a dollar for each of those options, so you have two dollars in, which means the market needs to move more than two dollars in any direction before you're in the money on your P and L. One hundred two or ninety eight. Right. And so you're betting, you're, which is a long ball process. You're right. betting again, you're hoping volatility expands and it goes out. If right. the market stays the same, volatility right. is going to come down and those lose their value. And they lose the value because of time decay, because of theta. Yeah. And so Wayne is doing his best to negate that theta decay through gamma scalping the position on a daily basis. And then so that's the straddle position. And so using the same analogy, if, if S&P is at 100, a strangle would be when you go out of the money. So if the S&P is at 100, you buy a call starting at 110 and you buy a put starting at 90. So you need the market to move below 90 or above 110 for you to make money. 10%. But, but the cost is a lot less than being, you know, at the money. So let's say at the money you're paying just rough numbers, you're paying a premium, like we said, for either side a dollar each. Once you're out of the money, it might be 10 cents each, but you need the market to move much more, but it's costing you a lot less. And for that strangle position, we use uh, Chris Cole and Artemis out of Austin, Texas. And I classic. I think of the strangle more from the short side of selling the strangle and you're kind of strangling the volatility. Like right, you want right. it to stay in that, in that same range. Right. But for, if someone's selling a strangle, there's someone who has to be buying it. Right. And, and the both parts of both the straddle and strangle, especially the strangle, especially when you're buying a strangle is, you know, 80 to 90% of the time, you're going to look like an idiot. The guy selling you that strangle is, is just cashing checks, right? He's, he's got that, like we talked about that income, he's making return after return after return. And then, you know, one in 10 year event comes along and he loses everything. It's the turkey problem as Nassim Taleb references. And so it, it, go, it boils back to the philosophically, this is exactly where Taylor and I want to be. We want to be buying as much options as possible. That's why the dynamic options make up the bulk of our portfolio. We use the other buckets around the periphery to just help manage the bleed. But at the end of the day, we want those convex asymmetric bets to pay out in a risk off scenario. And we only want to be buying options as much as possible. So talk to that a little bit, because it would seem if you're building this in your garage, you would not need the upside. You wouldn't need the calls. You'd only need the puts. Correct. Except for a melt up can just be just as disastrous for a lot of people as well. Uh, how so? Well, because as you as the market melts up, you're increasing your risk. Okay. Because you're building, as, as Hyman Minsky would say, an air pocket underneath those profits. And so, and just as much as... You know, as part of what we were talking about, option pricing, 
you know, in the different Greeks, the primary input to option prices is, is implied volatility. And as markets become more volatile and IV expands, both the, the price of puts and calls will expand and you can make money even on both sides of the trade. Right. And so they're using them a bit as a financing tool for the, the other side as well, right? In a way, yeah. And so what it also allows them to do is in these risk on times that we've been on, if you have a pop up in the markets, they're actually able to, to make a little bit of money there by having those calls on the books. Which will help finance and reduce the bleed over time. Right. And then and then there's market dynamics too, then which creates put skew is most people want to buy insurance. So that creates those puts are a little more expensive. And right now calls are very cheap. So you're getting really cheap convexity. And I, I know you like to argue this. There's no such thing as cheap convexity. Yeah. And I agree. But like for lack of a better term, you're, those calls are very cheap. Right. And from my standpoint is it's reflecting the probability that it'll happen right. no matter what what right. the price is that's what the market is setting the probability of the event happening at so it's neither cheap nor expensive right. it, it, it just is. is yeah, yeah. but that's my philosophy background coming through yeah um so that's the dynamic options bucket and the the third bucket the third bucket we call short-term down capture is just uh is trading short the s p market um and for just short s p intraday we use uh 3d capital eric dugan out of chicago um and that's his bones are made on just uh, using his proprietary algos to research the world markets and different uh, commodities, currencies, indices. And he uses that information to then short the S&P 500 futures when he thinks that, you know, that the market's about to go down. And, and that's what he does incredibly well. Uh, along those lines, we use uh, Deep Field once again out of Switzerland. And they do something very similar intraday on, on trying to, you know, follow those markets down, but they use the Asian, European, and U.S. markets. So like in 1987, during the flash crash, you saw the cascade across world markets over a 24-hour period. So well, not the, the flash crash, the uh, Black Monday. Yeah, Black Monday, sorry. Yeah, there, yeah. well, it technically would, would have been a flash yeah. crash, but yeah. It's before anyway, we yeah. were all humanly smart enough to come yeah, up with flash, flash crash. crash. Yeah. So on Black Monday, that relay race happened around the world, so they would trade intraday and follow those markets around the world. The reason we really like or uh, the short-term down capture with the futures is because the Delta one nature of the futures, meaning it's just a directional call. So what happens is in that like first leg down when, um, you know, markets start to crash and we have all those options on the books, they start to pay out handsomely. The problem is when we go to reset those options, the implied volatility is expanded. So now those like, options are very expensive for lack of a better term. So we're paying up for the fear in the markets, but the, the Delta one nature of the futures is we can just bet short the S&P 500 and we don't have to pay up for that fear. That's part of the dynamics in the option markets, which obviously leads me to another um, idea that we have around the philosophy of our ensemble portfolio is by having these different buckets, we have very different microstructures to the markets that we invest in. So the VIX is an entirely different market than like the S&P or the options market or, you know, so the VIX is going to have different structures around those traders. When you're just buying options, you know, the, just the, the Greeks of options lead to, you know, convex payouts and theta bleeds and et cetera. So that's a different microstructure. When you just go short intraday the futures, it's, as we said, it's, it's delta one. You're not paying up for that fear after the first or second leg down when fear is rampant in the markets. So I like the bucket structure because it like, it allows us to almost trade different microstructures, different styles, different managers. So it's almost a, uh, three forms of ensembles in a way to me it's like you have a manager's ensembles you have a bucket ensemble and you have different microstructure of market ensembles i like that and i want to come back to the short-term down capture it seems like that's the most 
non-structural to use a vague term of the trades you have there like vol arbs kind of structurally that's going to work the option structurally when it goes to work the the downside capture they just pure have to be right in yeah. their call that the market is directionally down. right yeah so it, yeah it seems a little counter thesis to the rest of it of it's a structural play right but you're saying you need it because sometimes those other pieces aren't going to catch that yeah like as taylor alluded to um part of creating this ensemble came out of the idea of you know, when we were both initially looking for managers to invest in, we were maybe looking at like one manager, right? And every manager has their own idiosyncratic risk. And so what we found through you guys and through going to conferences and meeting with all these managers, we say, look, you, we all go for upside. We know you have upside. Tell us where you get hurt. And so then we find out where they can get hurt. And then we go out and seek managers or other buckets that can cover the positions where they get hurt. Now that leads to a lot of overlap and a lot of redundancy, which probably reduces our return. But we care more about the downside risk than the upside risk. The upside will take care of itself. We're concerned about managing the downside. And so that's why you have these overlapping natures. And that's why you need those. So for example, like I was alluding to, the short-term down capture in the futures, those are great after that first or second leg down move. If the S&P just rips off 10, 20, 30% down, like we said, we go to roll those option positions, they're going to be prohibitively expensive. But those short futures are, are directional play. We don't have to pay up for them. Right. And... Taylor, I love what you guys are doing from that standpoint of a lot of strategies are just focused on this one narrow thing you're saying. And a lot of time and effort went into that of like, how do I identify each of these different paths that a down move could take? And how do I get exposure to those? So what drove that kind of thinking of, I, I need to be more than just this one trick pony. So I think coming back, you know, sort of the original, when Jason and I started talking about this, and then I think this has kind of been his, uh, his hobby horse that he's been uh, beating on for a long time, right, is how do you, how do you find something, you know, the, the ideal, again, the theoretical ideal is we want something that's negatively correlated to equity markets in, um, in a risk-off environment, right, when the, the equity markets are crashing, you want something that's, that's going up, but you want something that's either uncorrelated or you know, slightly correlated with equity markets and, and sort of the risk on times. And so the idea of these different buckets is, well, you know, historically, and obviously, you know, we don't know if correlations hold into the future, but historically, these different buckets have not been correlated with each other. And so if you can have these different buckets and rebalance between them and risk on times, you're able to use that to effectively, you know, offset your bleed, um, you know, offset the, the cost of carrying the long volatility positions uh, in good years. And so you're, you're trying to construct that, that return profile where, you know, you're, you're flat most of the time, but you still have that convexity position on for, for when you need it. And it seems like you're almost assuming one or more of the buckets is going to break or not hold water. Yeah. And so, all right, I need more buckets to put it. Yeah. Simply for you is it's, it's, it's this simple. If we're out here pitching this like black swan idea, right. And we're saying we can cover you in a market crisis and allegedly, you know, they're few and far between, like uh, let's say a black swan event allegedly happens once every 10 years. And we've been, you know, harboring your investments and your savings for like seven years. And then that event happens and we miss it. Yeah. We're a bunch of assholes. Right. Like, so it's like, we have to have all these path dependencies. That's what I wanted to get to. It's more about self-preservation exactly. and looking yourselves in the mirror. And yeah. because you're putting the bulk of your own exactly. money in these yeah. two of like, I want to be protected no matter the way it unfolds. Right. And I hope that came across as like, this is entirely structured out of Taylor and I scratching our own itch. It's just exactly, we're doing this with our own portfolios, our own family's money. Like, you should have a doctor look at that. Yeah, exactly. The itch. All right, the itch. <laughs> it's unfortunate for me, I scratch way too much. Uh, it's, uh, 
but that's all, all we're trying to do is how do we preserve our wealth over, you know, hopefully we live a long time and we, we want to be able to be there throughout the market cycles and we want our savings to outpace inflation. And so. that comes back to what I was saying earlier of the investors I'm talking to and they're getting fed up with the, it kind of what you're saying. Yeah. I've been holding this thing for this whole time and now this, it's a little shallow because they're like, and then this one month lost 5% yeah. in the stocks. I'm like, well, you were up 86% before that. So relax. <laughs> yeah. But the point being, they're they're feeling this of like, I'm doing this thing for this reason, then it doesn't do what I think it's right. going to do. And you can tell them all you want that, well, you're thinking wrong about it. But right. at the end of the day, it's it's their money, it's your money. And you're like, no, I'm this is how I'm thinking about it. And this is what I want it to do when that happens. Yeah. And like you said, we're, we're allaying all our own personal fears. That's the whole bucket ensemble, the manager ensemble, the microstructure ensemble. It's all because Taylor and I don't want to lose money. We don't want to lose our own money. So that's the whole point. And, and we know we are not smart enough to predict the future. So we're just trying to dumbly cover as many path dependencies as possible. I would say you're not dumb enough to predict the future. <laughs> exactly. Right? Uh, and I kind of think of it, uh, Jason, you and I both grew up in Florida. It's like buying hurricane insurance, but instead of, you know, not to protect anything, but just to make money. But you're going to buy it in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. So instead of just owning one state and then inside Florida, you're going to have Miami, Palm Beach, Cocoa, whatever. You're going to have yeah, uh, yeah. many cities inside South Carolina. You're going to have many cities. So you're, you know, buying that insurance and you're buying it in many cities in each bucket, in each state. Right. Well, actually, to cover your analogy, as you know, so many times, how many times have you been watching the hurricane forecast, watching it, watching, watching? It? It's like it's going to direct hit like Charleston. So you're like in Charleston, you're like direct hits three days out and then it takes a turn and goes up the coast and hits North Carolina. So to your point, yeah, you'd want to buy everything in South Carolina, everything yeah. in North Carolina. And to take that analogy further, yeah, so your guys' look is like, hey, there's the cone of uncertainty of how exactly. this, this down move is going to happen. I want to be at all points along that cone of uncertainty. Correct. And then the fourth bucket, which is if something, if yeah. it goes totally outside of the cone of uncertainty and none right. of our brilliant manager picks and strategies and everything, if they all with you know charlie brown the the long ball football right what's the fourth bucket has that fit in so as you pointed out to limit some of the bleed the managers might be in and out of the markets trying to limit their position sizing and so we added back that that rolling puts and so what we mean by that is what we did is um you know when you constantly have those puts on you're obviously just paying up for insurance so it's always going to be just a pure bleed but the way we try to manage some of that is we created an ensemble approach even to our rolling puts. So we have from anywhere from a negative 15% attachment point to a negative 25% attachment point. And the attachment point just means from the market structure uh, unit now, say from use 100 again, if it goes down you know, $15 all the way to $25, we use a blended approach to try to create an attachment point of negative $20. So a negative 20% attachment point. And we use uh, Hari Krishnan out of Doherty Advisors to manage that portfolio. So we actually have, even though it's almost like passively having the puts on, we even have an active manager managing an ensemble of different attachment points to try to limit that bleed as well. But we want that that those rolling puts permanently on and a permanent attachment point of negative 20% because like as Jeff alluded to, let's say on a on a Sunday, some sort of um, terrorist event or something like that happens and somehow our other managers aren't in there, we always have those rolling puts on and they'll always pay off as soon as markets reopen. And the downside of that is that's costing you 2 to 4% a year. Yeah, depending on where the market's at and the, and the options pricing are at. Like, yeah, we're at like 2 to 3% a year right now. And so that's a bleed. But we felt we wanted to, once again, because it's tailor and nice money, one, we want that protection there. 
And two, we feel with the ensemble approach in our other three buckets, we're able to generate enough returns where we're happy to eat that bleed on those puts. And other people just can't eat that bleed. They're unwilling to eat the bleed. So it's well, always... Yeah. Yes, no, there's tons of institutional money that eats that bleed all day long, which is yeah. the whole premise, the whole reason there's short volatility managers is they're just going to sell that insurance all day long. to right. this, right. And that's why the put skew exists and everything. Right. Let's switch gears a little. Taylor, what's your uh, ideal investor look like? You've talked a little bit about this kind of entrepreneurial call option or s- stuff like that. What's the ideal investor look like for you guys? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the people we've talked to so far that are kind of interested, I think one um, one is sort of like retirees, particularly like recent retirees that are like thinking, you know, people would classically do like a bond tent or something like that where, you know, you're, you're 70 and you just retired and you want to be very conservative for the next you know, five or 10 years or whatever. So I think, I think that's one segment. I think probably the biggest segment is, um, you know, small business owners, um, startup people, um, that sort of world where they have a lot of, you know, short vol exposure through their careers. And I think often, you know, as, as Jason was saying, I think we, we both had sort of uh, entrepreneurial backgrounds and, and so think about risk, you know, in a different way as a result of that. And so, you know, people that have, you know, that sort of mindset, um, seem to sort of under, seems to be more in, intuitive for them. They think you know they don't think about risk in terms of volatility, but risk in terms of you know drawdown is what matters. And I, I don't care if my revenue's up plus or minus twenty percent you know this month versus next month necessarily. Like what I care is like is the business gonna uh, gonna go bankrupt? Um, and so I think that's that's the other big segment. And then I think you know sort of as a part of that, as you you mentioned um, you know the the kind of person that you know would be great in you know 2009 2010 2011 if you were flush with a lot of cash right there was a lot of there's a lot of opportunity to go out and buy you know buy real estate buy stocks buy there a lot of assets that were for sale uh if you you know you could put up and pay cash and jason was telling a story about you know, someone uh, in a position like that that just went out to the the hamptons and offered 50 cents on the dollar for every house they could uh, finding the Hamptons and you know they ended up buying like four of them right because at that at that time there were some people that just had to have that liquidity yeah quick side story my fraternity brother in college he was uh Polish uh which led into a good Polish joke and he would self-tell it so I don't feel bad but he's like his grandparents had immigrated they came over they were in New York they couldn't grow potatoes on their uh land they're like whatever a mile's worth of land uh in the sand might have been great grandparents, but they couldn't grow it in the sand. So they left and moved to like Western New York from what is now the Hamptons. <laughs> like He's like, yeah, my, my great grandparents own two miles of real estate on what is now the Hamptons. Um, but yeah, I appreciate it. And I feel like nobody else is looking at it that way, which is, which is great because yeah, you want to buy when there's blood in the streets and what, what are the options hold cash for during a 180% S and P run, mm-hmm. like waiting for, the downturn so you can buy all this real estate. And I think I, I know a lot of small business owners that do that, you know, people that have sold, uh, you know, sold their business in the last three, four years. And yeah, they're just, they're, you know, they got a bank account, a savings account, and they're just sitting on the cash because they want to be in that, that sort of position. So I think, you know, the idea here is. Which is the class, like Warren Buffett, we're sitting here, right? He'd be like, no, I always want to have 30% cash or whatever he has for that reason, for when there's a value that I see so I can, I can buy it. And it's Taylor's like coined as like this entrepreneurial put option. Like yeah. we're like a convex cash position in a way. And I think that's, it's fascinating from our backgrounds as an entrepreneur. What we think about it all the time is like an entrepreneur, you can't help yourself. You have an idea and you drive it to fruition. 
and the overall macro environment has nothing to do with that idea. So it can be really unfortunate when you're in the middle of your entrepreneurial journey on this business that you can't get out of your head, that then the macro forces the, uh, of the markets in the world, all of a sudden liquidity dries up and it tanks. Well, if we have this entrepreneurial put option where you're driving your idiosyncratic risk with your business, and then you're investing your savings in mutiny fund, and all of a sudden that crash happens, your business is okay. Not only that, you're sitting on this huge cash position. You can go out there and buy up all your competitors or buy up their assets for pennies on the dollar. It doesn't have to just be real estate. You know, it can be yeah. anything. And yeah. a lot of times you can buy up everybody in your industry. Right, or buy a factory, buy whatever, buy new equipment. Or that yeah. cash allows your business to survive until the market, t you know, takes a turn back, you know, the recession clears and you're able to, you know, it, it provides longevity in your business. So that's why we view it as like, we. this was created for entrepreneur, you know, by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs, primarily. You know, hopefully we're a broad swath of audience, but we really like to help out entrepreneurs because that's the world we come from. And a lot of the people you've run across, Taylor, are, it seems, kind of hesitant market participants. We talked before about the most hated rally ever, and there's a lot of people who made a lot of money in crypto and other entrepreneurial things who are just in cash, unsure how to access the stock market. Yeah, I think that... Or if they even want to access the stock market. I, th I think some of them are not, not unrightly. You know, they look at the stock market and, and they don't understand. This doesn't make sense. It's like, I, I don't know what's going on. Like, what I do know is, you know, I just sold my, you know, software business for 5 or $10 million, whatever, and I, I understand how that business works. And so, like, I'm going to sit around and wait until I can get back into that business. Right, but I don't understand how Tesla is worth more than GM and Ford combined. Right. So I think that's, um, you know, that's where a lot of people, I, I, um, Mark Cuban has his, you know, I have mixed feelings on Mark Cuban, but uh, has like something like kind of his like war chest theory, right? Which I think he, he tends to sit on a lot of cash as well, right? He's looking for, you know, when is there some opportunity that I have that I have some some sort of credible edge on? And, you know, if you, whatever, you sold a software company or something, there's whatever that space was, you were in the cybersecurity software space, like there's there's a credible edge there, right? You understand how that space works better than someone else. And if you're in a position to, to go acquire a company, to go buy a stake in a company or something. And, and sort of that uh, scenario where liquidity dries up, like you're, that's a really strong uh, position to be in. And is it, your theory is that all of these entrepreneurs are short volatility. They're basically long the stock market, whether they actually are long the stock market at all. Like that a stock market crash will crash the economy. There'll be a recession. There'll be tightening of credit. Like all these things that will affect the entrepreneur even if he doesn't own a share of Apple or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, I think, you know, our general thinking is that most people are more short vol than they realize, right? You've got, you know, to what extent, you know, let's say you run a, you run a small business, like, you know, I guess small businesses don't tend to be as cyclical as, as the stock market, but they're still cyclical. You own a house, uh, you know, that, that's going to be tied to the, the overall economy. Um, you know, you, your clients can dry up, whatever that looks like. And so having, as Jason was saying, you know, you're, you're good at you know building software companies um, in the cybersecurity space or something like a way to hedge out sort of that macro risk. Like you don't know what the Fed is going to do, and you know or what you know whatever's going to happen in the stock market uh, next month. So some way to hedge hedge that risk and just focus on what it is that you're really good at. Jeff, do you think it's too much of a stretch? Like we're talking about like the overall market risk, and like you said, you might not be in stocks, but you're you're correlated with the market more than you realize, and that's because we can maybe simplify it, look at it as more as liquidity. During risk on, liquidity is washed and everybody can buy your products. You can get loans for your business. You can do all those sorts of things. As soon as the market tanks, liquidity dries up and all those loans get called in. And that's where you're tied to the markets because the markets are more a function of liquidity. During risk on, there's plenty of liquidity and everybody's happy. During risk on, liquidity dries up and that's when we have problems. 
that's a hundred percent. And then you can compound that if you're in a lot of these quote unquote air quote alternative investments that are hedge funds that use leverage that borrow money. So not only is the yeah. small investor and everyone at risk from a capital uh, tightening, the alternative investments that you may be diversifying in to protect yourself from that liquidity crisis needs liquidity in order to protect you from the liquidity crisis. So it's kind of can be a double-edged sword for a lot of these alternative investments out there. And that's why, because it's our money too, we only want to be in the futures and options market because of the cash settlement. So we have that. So we know the cash is going to be there. But even better is by buying those options, when when somebody else fire in the crowd theater and everybody's rushing through that door and they're desperate, for like put options, guess who's sitting on the inventory? That's yeah. us. And we're there to rip your face off on that spread. Yeah. No offense. <laughs> um, and yeah, and the, the real estate, to bring it back full circle, like real estate, especially you, okay, even if you're sitting on that cash, like, and you wanted to buy 10x your cash, like you're going to have trouble getting those loans and doing right. doing what you need to do at the depths of a, of a crisis. Cash is incredibly king in that scenario. Yeah. And yeah, I do like not sorry to go off on a tangent, but what would be incredibly brilliant is you use that cash to buy up everything you can cash for pennies on the dollar. You wait for the market to turn back around and however many years it takes, and then you repackage the loans and draw your money back out. That's all. It's, it's that yeah. simple. And uh, just quickly, which we'll hope to get him on the pod one day, but Don Wilson, a prop trader in Chicago who's done very well, is was famous in 08 for doing just this. Like he was prop trading, made a ton of money as the markets took down and he was buying hotels in Aspen, whole blocks in Chicago. Um, and then as the opportunities in the prop trading kind of slowed down, he was right there and had, had all these real estate assets. And cash is not cash, right? Cash right now is very different than cash in 08. Oh yeah. Also like there's the well, value of cash is completely different in a crisis. And what if you have cash in Germany right now? It's not only <laughs> different, you're paying somebody else to hold it. Um, what were you going to say, Taylor? Sorry. Uh, Unknown. I lost. Uh, no, I guess one way I think about to going back to the entrepreneurial put option, right? Is your, um, you know, you, if usually the best investment you can make is in yourself, right? You know, I'm going to go take a weekend seminar on you know how to do AdWords or whatever, and that could pay off a hundred x to one. You know, I pay a thousand dollars, and I could you know learn to do AdWords from a business and um, make a hundred times that money. And so being in a, you know, being in a position to be able to do that investment in, you know, yourself, whatever your particular skill set is, your background and to have that liquidity when, when no one else does, isn't that's a nice combination. Um, let's pivot for a second. Uh, Jason, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But uh, never. You love to use some good ten dollar words. Oh man, yeah. From time to time, uh, in our portfolio construction debates. Yes. And I even got you a nice Christmas present with highly ergod ergodic. Yes. On it. Um, take me through some of these fancy words you like and what they mean for you in terms of the portfolio construction. I, I'm a def- I, I, I'm I can a, do the I can do the ergodic. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let I'm gonna pass the actual definitions of the words of Taylor, but I'm gonna defend myself for a second. Okay. The words actually, what I found is they come from a function of reading too much, and so your vocabulary accidentally increases from reading too much. And maybe because uh, I'm a college dropout, I have an insecurity, so I always read too much. Like we were talking about the other night before podcasts and YouTube, I used to average like a hundred books a year. And I think it's just a natural function of reading too much. I mean, I've noticed if I if I if I slow down my reading, like or if I haven't been reading for a while, my vocabulary falls off a cliff. 
And then as soon as I'm reading, these words just come in your head, and it's just from reading. Yeah. But I, I love, and you're reading like thick, heavy stuff. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I read ridiculous stuff. I, I have yeah. a problem. But uh, there was a quote once I loved that was something like, he mispronounced the $10 words like somebody who was a reader that grew up in a family that didn't read. Yeah. So I may be able to read the words and I know how they're spelled, but I wouldn't be surprised if I mispronounce them all the time because I haven't heard them in real life. <laughs> but I'll let, uh, as far as like er- ergodicity and everything, it's a... And I'll Taylor be, wanted that. Yeah, Taylor, Taylor's going Taylor's gonna to field the definition, but I, and, and, and for the people out there that are, um, you know, that's, it's a concept they're trying to wrap their heads around. It, I'll be honest, it took me really almost probably a year to really grok in my bones what, the, what those concepts really meant and, and how to really apply them to your life. So um, ergodicity, as, as I understand it, is the difference between a, a time average and an ensemble average. So the, um, the example is, you know, if you take 100 people and you give them each $100 and they go into a casino and let's say they're counting cards, they're playing blackjack, um, they uh, have an edge. Uh, on average, let's see, you know, whatever the edge is, they're going to win $50 over the course of that day. So on average, the average person is going to walk out of there with 150 bucks. And so... It's great, right? It's like this is I should keep doing this. I can I can play this game uh, forever. However, if you have one person, they start with a hundred dollars and they go in a hundred days in a row. Unless you say they're um, you know they're they're taking all their winnings back. They're not they're not taking anything off the table. Um, if you know in the the ensemble the the hundred people, let's say one of those people went bust, right? One of them got unlucky, even though they had an edge, right? You you can still have a bad run of luck. If you have one person that's doing that over a sequence of a hundred days and they go bust on day 27, there is no day 28, right? You, you right. blew it up. And so that's, um, that's a non-ergotic scenario. The time average and the ensemble average um, are not the same. And so, I mean, that's the reality of most of life, right? Like, I don't care that on average an investor makes X, Y, Z in this uh, strategy. Like, what I care about is, like, how I do. Like, I, I care about what, right. what my portfolio. And kind of back to the, like, you can drown in a river that's, on average, three yeah, feet deep. Yeah, yeah. Right, because if the middle channel is 20, uh, 20 feet deep and right. super fast, you know, that'll suck you under. And I always explain it as we're all in our office in Chicago near the Sears Tower. No, we're not going to call it the Wilson Tower, Sears nice. Tower. Nice. And we say, all right, we're all 10 of us walking over to the Bean, which is our sculpture there by the lake. All take different paths. If we all get there at the same time, it's ergodic, right? Yep. If we one guy gets there an hour ahead of the last guy, it's non-ergotic and the paths mattered very greatly. The other way I like to, the vivid one is uh, the Russian roulette example. Oh, yeah. Do you want to be one of six people pulling the trigger or do you want the one guy that pulls the trigger six times? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or, or, and oh. historically, I think people called it sequencing risk. So throughout your lifetime, as you near retirement, you have sequencing risk. You can't handle a drawdown when you're 70 and a half and starting to have forced withdrawals out of your retirement funds. If you hit a drawdown at that period, you're as you're doing withdrawals, you're now exponentially compounding your drawdown. Right, or the so, people had to pay for college starting in 08, right. who just lost 50% of the college savings fund. Right. Once again, that sequencing risk means the time, your time in your lifespan is not lining up with the ensemble average of returns over decades. And so the whole concept you're trying to solve with Mutiny is to make sure those, no matter the path, no matter the timing, that it's going to work out for the investor. And I, I think it's part of like you know, the way, it seems like the way a lot of finance work is it's this, you know, based on this idea of like expected value, right? Like that's how I'm going to uh, make the most money. I'm going to do my discounted cash flow of all these things and say this one has the, you know, the highest expected value. 
Um, but it, it said Jason's trigger word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but you know that ignores like what again what the what the drawdown is. This might have a very high expected value, but it could have a you know a ninety percent uh, drawdown. And like at you know when that happens, you may also like need that money to pay for your spouse's surgery or your you know parents whatever or you know your your kid's college or whatever. And so that that sequencing risk that you know volatility tends to cluster and happen at the same time. Is, is part of what we're trying to solve for. So give me a couple of the other ones you like to use. I couldn't pull them off our tech string. For, oh, like time and ensemble probabilities? Or? No, your $10 word. Oh, my paradox. $10. Perondo's paradox is one. Yeah, you hate that one, Jeff. Um, I'm trying to think. Because it's not something I think about often. <laughs> they just come out. Yeah, yeah, they come out when they do. Um, yeah, we love, obviously, yeah, Ergodic is the one you make fun of us a lot for. Um, the original name from our fund that you made fun of is... Uh, ataraxia which was yes. uh is you know in stoic philosophy is uh, unperturbed by external events but like you, you you're yeah. glad we went with mutiny fund instead of right. <laughs> ataraxia both of our are the luckily the ladies in both of our lives uh nixed that one but oh uh, and it didn't quite fit you'd be rewarded for right not unperturbed be rewarded. it's like it, we think of it as like sleep at night portfolio that's what we are like we want to know when we go to bed at night and our savings are sitting there if we wake up to any sort of traumatic or unexpected news on, you know, on the morning news channel that we we know we're good. So let's talk a little bit. It doesn't quite matter for how you've put the portfolio together, but what are your thoughts on where the markets are at and what are some of the dangers are out there? And if you want to say that's it's all BS narrative, who cares? What's the JP Morgan it, quote? I'm, I predict the market will fluctuate. Yeah. Something happens. Yes. That's my prediction. Uh, this actually goes back to why you and you are asking me why I don't watch sports. And one of the reasons is I can't stand pundits. And I can't stand people. You know what this guy needs to do? I can't believe he missed that shot. Like, that's a no break. Like, that was a gimme. It's like. So you've got a Stephen A. Smith poster on your like, wall? Yeah. If you, were, if you were that good, like, you'd be on the field. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, some of them were on the field. No, but, but even if they were, the newer guys are 10 times better athletes. And so yeah. I don't even care. Like, you're it's still you're irrelevant. You're a relic. And so part of that is like pundit like gold. Punditry is is and predicting the future is impossible. So why bother? And that's the whole point of our portfolio. If you combine short volatility and long volatility assets, you never need to look at your portfolio again. Full stop. Full stop. Yeah. And I want to go back to a time like pre what is pre nineteen eighty, maybe, when you had your savings that you never thought about. Now people are looking at their smartphones 20 times a day to check their Robinhood account. How is that helping you? I want people to go back to running their business, doing what they're great at, spending time with their family, enjoying their hobbies, and forget about your savings and retirement. If you have long volatility and short volatility, you can sleep at night and forget about that and go about living your life. And trying to predict the future and have a narrative fallacy about the future is entirely pointless. And like, yeah, I could predict all sorts of stupid ideas for the future, but who cares if they come true or not? So where do you think you think the U.S. will go negative interest <laughs> rates? I have no idea. I couldn't care less. Right. But I do appreciate about that what you guys are doing. You're, it's not just a money making. We want to build this business and make money for ourselves. It's, it's kind of uh, maybe it's because you are from California now. But you kind of have this <laughs> this philosophical like need to live a good life. Yeah. Um, what did you call it? you had one of your ten dollars words for that at some point? But you have this desire to like be true to yourself intellectually true mm -hmm. and live this good life and and say hey 
I don't want to worry about this stuff. So that's why I'm creating this thing. I'm waiting for Taylor to chime in right now because I know he's like, because like that, that's usually the, the huckster that's trying to sell you false goods, right? It's like, I'm doing this for like the right yeah, reasons. Right. That was the we right. work. We're doing, we're right. not doing this for the money. We're doing this because we're good people. No, it's, right. like, that's where the skin in the game comes right, from. Right, right. Yeah. The huckster sign you the medicine, like, you better be drinking that medicine <laughs> exactly. too. <laughs> but the, uh, and yeah, and you have like, this mattress will change your life. And this, right, there's a lot, there's way too much of that these days. Yeah. But to your point, I think, and that's what I was alluding to, is I think that people spend, you know, as you know, I hate the idea of investments. I hate that word. Because it's savings. Let's call it what it is. You know, you have production and then you have consumption and whatever's left over is savings. And that savings, going back to sequencing risk and ergodicity, that savings needs to be there when you need it. That's all it is. And as soon as somebody says investments, they're going to sell you some fucking scam that can make 10%, 20% a year, but loses all your money. You don't want your money to make money. You want your savings to outpace inflation and be there when you need it. You make money in your career and in your business. You set aside that savings for later when you need it. You need it to outpace inflation. That's it. Go about your business. Go about your family. Go about your hobbies. Enjoy your life. Live authentic to yourself. And when you need the savings, it should be there if you balance out short volatility and long volatility. It's the best you can do. My argument to that would be I only have a little bit of money. I want it to grow and become more money. That's how you lose money. But... Right. If you That's have no a, money. So to Taylor's point, how do you get to the invest place in where yourself, you have enough to save? Invest in yourself, invest in your career, invest in your business, make more money, have more savings and keep setting it aside in an ergodic portfolio. I would argue the grand scheme of Americans can't invest in themselves properly enough to, to make that happen. But well, I think, yeah. And I, think, I guess the, the trade-off that every individual can decide to make is if you, if you have short volatility and long volatility, uh, you can, you know, you can apply more leverage to that to try. If you want to generate, you know, if you want, if you want to take more risk for greater return, like that, that's your prerogative. But the most ergodic option, you know, the, would be to, uh, you know, if you're not using all of a modest amount of leverage, you had shortfall and long vol, then yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're that's savings, right? That's you know, if you're maximizing for for ergodicity, you're maximizing for that that time averaging ensemble average being the same. That's that's what savings should do, right? You're you're maximizing that over you know, 400 years, whatever, long into the future that, that that's still going to be there. And then to your point though, and for lack of a better term, if you want to still make money and compound, combining short volatility and long volatility is actually the only way to do it. That's going to maximize your log wealth. So if you want your money to actually grow, that's how you do it. So for lack of a better term, not say like holy grail portfolio or whatever, let's just take an example. Let's take 2018. Let's say you're 100% in S&P and 100% like a long volatility tail risk portfolio. The S&P is down 5%. The tail risk long volatility portfolio is up 20%. So combined, you're up 15% if you're 100-100, right? You rebalance that portfolio. You go into 2019. Now the market rips up 30%, but now your long volatility tail risk say is down 10%. So you're up 20% on average, uh, combining the two. So on 2018, you're up 15%. 2019, you're up 20%. Now you compounded at 15 and 20%. If you were an S&P only, you are down 5% and then up 30%. What maximizes your log wealth? It's compounding positive numbers maximizes your log wealth. Right. So Same. actually, even though you're protecting yourself and you're, you're, you're truncating those left tails and reducing your down, drawdown risk, you actually end up wealthier over time by being a more boring portfolio. And what do you mean by log wealth? It's logarithmic 
Yes. It compound growth rate over time. Which is Einstein, the most, the most <laughs> yeah. powerful force in the what universe. Is isn't that what you do for interest? every quote? Just assign it to Einstein or like yeah. Uh, or I think that's misattributed. I think that's fake. Yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah. really. That's I why I said I think that. It's yeah. apocryphal. Yeah. yeah, but it's a good line. Let's look that up. Um, so that it's a weird thing. To like, yeah, I a boring portfolio is actually your best portfolio. And I would feel. Right, most of the people you're going to talk to are like, I'm doing volatility arbitrage and all this stuff. That doesn't sound very boring. Right, and unfortunately, that this is the hard part of our business, as you know all too well, is what we do, do sounds incredibly complex, and it kind of is because to just buy implicit short vol assets like stocks and bonds, you just hit the buy button. It's the simplest thing in the world. But due to the way the markets work, to have long volatility terrorist stuff is very complex, and you need uh, very active management to run that portfolio, which creates an educational hurdle for us but that's kind of the way it works out right and it's like well if you want the goods you gotta right and so it's it's great on the on the short vol side you're not really paying for that and it's really simplified so you end up paying for just half you pay you pay for the long vol side right but it seems <clears throat> most of the investing public would prefer simplicity over effect right like yeah almost like people i'd rather have this good looking fashionable jacket than the one that actually keeps me warm. Well, I think, yeah, and a lot of that's market, like, you know, okay, you're going to buy the S&P 500 index, like the complexity of all the companies that make that mm. up, mm. what business they're in, how their business, right? I mean, it's an incredibly deep, complex thing, but it's just become the, like, that's just, you know, that's... Right, the, and then ETFs have already figured this out. We're like, like, they're just doing it on one side of the ledger. You guys, that, that just made me think about it in a great way for the first time. It's, it's the vehicle that reduced the complexity. So the ETF made the actual individual companies in the SP 500 less complex and the vehicle made it simple. So we're actually trying to make the long vol and tail risk simple through the vehicle mutiny fund. Yeah. We're trying to just have, have you just buy set and forget program, mutiny investment program. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing we always say is, uh, counterintuitively, uh, we achieve stability through volatility. All right. I like it. I'm going to ask you some of your favorites here. Uh, favorite book other than yours, Taylor? Uh, I'm going to go Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Carse. Okay, give me the back page on that. He's uh, The good news is you really only need to read the first chapter. He gets the whole idea across in like the first 35 pages. But he was a, he was a philosophy professor at NYU in like the 70s and 80s. And uh, basically the idea is... You know, there, there are two types of games, finite games and infinite games. Finite games are, are played, you know, by the rules towards a known end, and infinite games are played by by playing with the rules towards some indefinite end. So, you know, if you're playing a baseball game, there there's known rules, right? You know, you have three strikes, and you got to run on the bases, and, and, you know, at the end of the game, one team is going to win. But if you're a father playing catch with your son, you know, you're, you're not trying to strike him out and... And, uh, you know, maybe some. You've never are. seen me throw. A <laughs> yeah, I, I eat my words, but uh, you know, you're you're playing to be able to keep playing the game, right? The victory is, yeah. is that you get to keep uh, playing the game. So There's right. a it, Trump allegory in there somewhere, but um, and Jason, hundred a month, a year. <laughs> all right. So first of all, Taylor's finite infinite games, phenomenal book. Love that answer. I hate this question. I absolutely hate this question when people ask it because it just makes no sense to me. Just don't be <laughs> a Grinch and pick yeah. a book. It's like, no, I'm not going to do it because I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take a stand on this because choosing a favorite for a piece of art 
to me is a waste of time. Or it's like choose your favorite child. Exactly. It's similar. But like even now, but now I have hundreds of children, not even just two, you know, like I'm a easy. Well, yeah, exactly. Just exactly. Re- recommend a book to the audience. No, I'm not going to do it. I, I take a stand. <laughs> what is one of the most interesting books you've read in the past two months? On the past two months. See, now, you, now you're getting better. Now you're getting smart. <laughs> I was actually just, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> rereading uh, um, Benoit Mandelbrot's uh, Misbehavior of Markets. So obviously that's very, it's cheating because it's very uh, adjacent to what we do. Um, but I was just rereading that on my, on my trip to Miami. How about non-investing? Because what, do you read all market investing books? No, 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 no. I, uh, I'm pretty profligate. I, you know, I'm, I'm. $10 word, I'm, profligate. Or, or I'm very whorish. I'll, I'll read almost <laughs> anything and everything. But if, if primarily um, centers around uh, philosophy, classic literature, and then, and markets. The, uh. You should try something. I'm trying to convince this guy and you to get on with me and do a book podcast. But his, he reads incessantly. And his new thing is that he's only this year going to read books by female authors. Oh, that's good. Right? He thinks he's in a, he gets in his own bubble of like, I'm reading all these white men that are essentially coming from the same place. I want these outside views. And so he's going to kind of have these. And then when he travels, I'm only going to read books about Morocco or wherever I'm going. Mm. And they could be fiction. They could be by someone from that area. Anyway, interesting. Uh, favorite uh, Texas barbecue spot, Taylor? I would say Terry Black's is the value pick. It's uh, it's just outside of downtown, and so it gets like one-tenth the foot traffic of all the most popular places. Uh, Chewy's? Uh, Chewy's is Mexican. Franklin's Tex-Mex. Is, Franklin's and uh, La Barbecue are like the two uh, two most well-known hot ones. And they're like, they're great. But like the difference between like the first and the fifth best place is basically zero. So you might as well go to the fifth best place because it's... You, you know. prefer Tex-Mex or barbecue in Texas or sushi? No, nah, not sushi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tex-Mex, I guess. You can, I mean, you can just eat. I can eat Mexican every day, right? You just fajitas and tacos and you can just keep going. Uh, Taylor, so you live in Napa, favorite, uh, excuse me, Jason, live in Napa, favorite wine. I knew you were going to do this to me. Favorite vineyard. I knew you were going to do this to me. Without getting yourself in trouble with your girlfriend. Uh, I'm going to get myself in tremendous amount of trouble because I'm a heretic and I don't really like the Napa wine, so I can't (laughs) even pick a favorite. Uh, there's very few I like and I, I try not to drink any of them, but really? So it's a big scam, the Napa? No, no, no. It's subjective, right? As as all, this is a problem with art and choosing. It's subjective. And uh, I was raised in restaurants and as a sommelier, and, and I was, my foundations were European wines. So my palate leans much more European, and Napa's different. Not that either is better. They're just for different occasions. They're different styles, different strokes for different folks. And uh, I'm a heretic that lives in the in the heart of the orthodoxy. And you'd prefer French wines, you're saying? Yeah, like, you know, Burgundies, Cru Beaujolais, that sort of thing. You tried Yellowtail? Yeah, it's fantastic. I love it too. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, you're saying Texas has a lot of wine now. Texas is the second largest wine producing state in the country. It's about oh. hundred one percent or point one percent of of California. They must be very upset. They're not first at something. Yeah, well, in terms of biggest gro- growth rate is much higher than California. It's doubling year over year or something. I'll, g- I'll give you one. You're okay. not going to be able to find it, but it's called Ad Vivum, made by Chris Phelps. There's there are a few winemakers in the Napa region that are making very old world styled wines, and Chris is one of them. And Chris is a a legendary underground legend um, because he used to make uh, Dominus, and and prior to that, he worked at uh, Only American to ever like make wine at Chateau Petrus, uh, which is one of the great you know wines of the world in France. And he makes a, a small production called Ad Vivum, and that's one of the Napa wines I'll definitely drink. 
And I did have, when I've been in Napa a few times and you're going to all these vineyards and I, the first time I was there, I'm like expecting some story of this little old French man who came over with like a bag full of vines and they're like, no, this guy ran Reno casinos. Exactly. And bought this thing and it's like so commercial and huge uh, bats. Re- and You're really going to get me in trouble now. So <laughs> I've coined the term, I call it surname laundering. So you make your money in some unglamorous thing, like you just said, like Reno or, you know, some sort of uh, construction company in Iowa, or you are the, uh, you're a a meat packer in Michigan, whatever. And you take all that wealth and you come out and buy a vineyard and you build a chateau and a winery, you lose a bunch of money, but now your kids and grandkids are now seen as blue buds. So it's surname laundering. So you took your name that was made in a, a blue collar business, which should be exalted, but it's not. Yeah. And you and you use all that wealth to buy up vineyards and everything, lose money. So then your kids and grandkids can live like a patrician class. It's a form of like uh, landed gentry, I think, in the modern times. Deep take, hot take. <laughs> um, uh, favorite podcast? I got Hidden Forces. That's probably Ooh, that's my, a good one. That's a good one. Uh, my top one, uh, Dimitri Kofinas. So it's like I'd say half market stuff, half like other. He's a, kind of a big like complexity science chaos kind of guy. Yeah, that one makes me think a lot. I think that one, uh, Econ Talk, I really like with Russ Roberts um, because uh, a lot of those Hayekian takes are like very um, counterintuitive to what we are our initial emotional reaction. So it makes you think about it more. Um, Selma Hayek. Yeah, yeah, Selma, Selma Hayek, you know, the great economist philosopher Selma Hayek. Uh, I think, yeah. Hayekian? The road to Mexican serfdom. I love her, her talk on the pretense of knowledge. Was yeah, yeah, exactly. When she delivered that at the Grammys, I, yeah, I cried. Exactly. Um, and then I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts, honestly. I haven't got into those yet. I should. Yeah, I listen to like, uh, you know, like Burt Kreischer, Two Bears, One Cave. Uh, yeah, I love that. The, uh, mine is Binge Mode Star Wars. Well, yeah, that's you. Which leads nice. me into my next question, which you might get kicked out of the studio, Jason. But favorite favorite Star Wars character? Chewie. Chewie. Can you do a Chewie? <laughs> Perfect. First guest who said Chewie who actually did the oh, Chewie. Man. I love it. I've been practicing. Jason, did you prepare yourself and I ha- did not make one myself. up? You know I'm, I am not a fan of Star Wars. Or sports. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to get kicked out of the studio any minute now. Um, I do not, I like, I don't even, couldn't even. Han Solo? I go with Han Solo just because the actor, what was his? Uh, Harrison Ford? Yeah, I like Harrison Ford, so. Or or young Harrison Ford, I like young Harrison Ford, so I'll go with Han Solo. <laughs> Done. All right, well, thanks again to Jason and Taylor. Uh, for more on the Mutiny Investment Program, links to uh, their website, white papers and whatnot, will be in the show notes. We'll also add some links to Taylor's book and blog. And uh, where can they find you guys on Twitter? We're at Mutiny Fund on Twitter. And, then you're and I'm at Taylor Pearson Me. It's pretty long. <laughs> I know. There's uh, some girl in Minnesota is at Taylor Pearson. I've been trying to buy it oh. off her for six years. I got nothing. <laughs> That's my life hack. I bought JeffMalik.com a long time ago and my kidsnames.com and all that. Of like and I, A theory that in the future there's no phone numbers or anything. It's just like your URL. That is world's greatest stat. I have never thought about that. That was genius. Yeah. Well, I didn't write if they're like, what do you do? World's greatest dad. We'll end it there. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlts 
and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.